I'm so excited to bring this word today on the key of David. So I don't know if you've ever heard a sermon on the key of David. Honestly, I've never preached one before. So I'm very excited because this is a brand new sermon the Lord has given to me. It's something that I've been researching for a while and I, I was just waiting on the right opportunity and the Lord presented this opportunity for me to uh, talk about a subject that I'm so intrigued by in the Bible called the key of David. Pastor Nico in Jakarta, uh, Indonesia, has built one of the largest churches in the entire world. As a matter of fact, he is the pastor of the largest church of God in the Church of God denomination. And his church has a membership of over 500,000 people. And uh, he has to have over 1,200 uh, worship services a weekend just to accommodate this large group. And they meet all over town. They meet in hotels. They meet in a mall. They meet all over town in all kinds of large buildings to accommodate 500,000 worshipers that come out to worship each weekend. Uh, recently, I met with him and his pastors because they were dealing with something that they call the third Pentecost. And they asked me to come and have breakfast with them. And they just want to sh me to share some of my ideas about the third Pentecost. And they want to share their ideas. They were writing a book about it. And so we were having breakfast over, um, uh, over this subject, talking about this whole subject of the third Pentecost, this great outpouring of the Holy Spirit that's happening right now in Indonesia and in many parts of the world. And so during this time of talking with them, they made a comment that really got me intrigued. Now, this was, this was a, about a year or so ago when we had this conversation. He said to me in the middle of this breakfast, he said, our entire ministry has been centered around restoring the tabernacle of David. He said, this is the whole concept that drives our purpose and our worship services. That is what we're all about. And he was, he was putting the idea of the third Pentecost in the context of this tabernacle of David. Well, I have to be totally honest, it kind of caught me off guard because I'd never heard anyone say that they had built a church, especially one of the largest churches in the world, around the concept of the tabernacle of David. Now, the tabernacle of Moses, we've heard about. Christ coming to tabernacle with us the, the, uh, in the millennial reign, we've heard about that. We've heard about Sukkot. We've heard about, um, we've heard about the, the tabernacles, the Feast of Tabernacles. But the Tabernacle of David is something that very few people talk about the, because you have to piece the story together in the Bible to even understand what the Tabernacle of David is about. Well, this really put me on a journey, and I started praying and asking the Lord to teach me about the Tabernacle of David. Now, this was uh, early on in 2019 when I had this conversation uh, in January of that year. And so I prayed for months, and I kept saying, Lord, I want you to teach me about the Tabernacle of David. I want you to help me to understand the concept behind this and why it's so important and why one of the largest churches in the world was built on this concept of restoring the Tabernacle of David. And on July the 23rd, 2019, at 5.30 in the morning, I wrote that down in my journal. That's why I know the date. The Holy Spirit woke me up. And said, Brian, today I'm inviting you into my classroom. Now, in, the, in my backyard, I have a pavilion. And I went out there and sat under this pavilion in a hard rain. It was raining all around me. And I felt like that I was under this pavilion, rain all around me. And the Holy Spirit began to teach me. 
What I didn't anticipate is this teaching went on for five hours. For five hours, the Lord would lead me from one scripture to another scripture. And I begin to digest this whole concept of what it means not only to rebuild the tabernacle of David, but what happens when you do rebuild the tabernacle of David. Or the, and, and I want to share all this information with you. But here's the one thing the Holy Spirit told me that began to put me on the right journey. He said that the key of David is the key to unlocking the, 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 the miracles and the rewards and the tabernacle of David, the key of David. Well, I knew the passage in Revelation 3 and 7, which talked about the key of David. So that's where we're going to start. We're going to start in Revelation chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 7. Now, we're going to go through a journey through the Bible. So hold on to your seatbelt and get ready to look up some scriptures because the, we're not going to have one text today. We're going on a journey through the Bible to understand the tabernacle of David and in, in particularly the key of David. So let's start with Revelation chapter 3, verse 7. And, and to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things says the Lord who is holy, he who is true. He who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one's open. Have you ever heard anyone say that before? God will open a door that no man can shut and God will shut a door that no man can open. Well, the key of David is the key to that door opening and closing. So where is this door located? What door is he talking about? What does the key of David do? Now, before you can understand how this key works, the first thing you have to, you have to realize is where this verse is written. So John, we know, is on the Isle of Patmos, but he's actually speaking to Christ. So you have to start there and say, where is Christ when he gives them this instruction about the key of David? Well, Jesus is standing, Christ is standing in the heavenly temple by the candlestick. You know that in Revelation chapter 1. When he saw him, he is standing by the candlestick in priestly garments. So Christ is in the temple in heaven, which was the prototype of, of the tabernacle of Moses. So Christ is in the real temple in heaven in his priestly garments standing by the candlestick. Now, this door on the earth has to be entered through veils. So you have two veils in the outer court. You have a veil to go in the inner court. Then you have a veil because there's no doors in the tabernacle of Moses. You only have veils. But in the heavenly temple, you don't have uh, veils. You have doors. We know that because when Isaiah saw the Lord high on his throne, he said, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, Isaiah 6. His train filled the temple. And then he says that when the seraphim began to cry, holy, 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 what shook? The doorpost shook. He said the doorposts were shaking by the voice of those who cried out. So we know in the heavenly temple there are no veils. There are doors that lead you from the outer court to the inner court into the Holy of Holies. So this is the beginning of understanding this. Now, in order for the high priest to get into God's presence... He has to use holy smoke. Now, if you've ever been to a Catholic Mass, you've seen holy smoke. Holy smoke is when they have this golden censer and they begin to move it around, especially at a funeral. They'll take the holy smoke and move it around the entire coffin at a Catholic funeral. 
Well, holy smoke is how the priest had to enter into the Holy of Holies. Now, he had to be cleansed. I won't go through all the cleansing rituals. He had to start at the outside of the, go through the outer court into the inner court. And then he had to take this censer full of incense and create this holy smoke and go under the veil, or some people say through the veil, with this censer in his hand. The holy smoke led him into the Holy of Holies. Now, that was a symbol of worship. So, so how, how do we understand that worship is the way that gets you into God's presence? Well, when you start looking at the history of worship, the idea of worship, it takes you all the way back to the beginning of the Bible in the book of Genesis. Now, here's what the Bible tells us about worship in the book of Genesis. It says that men begin to call on the name of the Lord. That's what we know about worship. Do you realize that in the book of Genesis, the, about the only thing we see that has to do with worship is prayer. We don't see songs. We don't see stringed instruments. We don't see anything like that. What we know about, about worship in the beginning of, of the book of Genesis is prayer. So they would build these altars. Abraham was the altar builder. He would build these altars and make sacrifices to God. They would kill a lamb or kill a ram and burn it. It looked more like a barbecue than a worship service. And that's what they called worship. And the smoke would go up and that was the holy smoke. So the smoke from the, from the burning of this animal, this barbecue would go up. And the Bible said that it went into the nostrils of God and he accepted it as worship. No songs were sang. No offering was taken care of. No one testified. There were no water baptisms. There were no children being dedicated. There was no oil on anybody's head. No one was being prayed for. That's what worship looked like. All through the time of Abraham. Now, when you get to the time of Moses, you start seeing a ritual type of worship being established. But again, it's very limited in how you can worship God. What you see there is the blood sacrifices, the grain offerings, the oil offerings, still no singing. Oh, I, I get it. There's a song that breaks out on the banks of the, uh, the, the, the river, the, or the Red Sea rather, when God delivers them. They get out their tambourines and they start singing this song unto the Lord. But that's the only song we see among the children of Israel at this time. We also have, a, have another song we call the Song of Moses. But you have to understand that what singing looked like in their day and time was more like a cantor chanting. So it was like I would say something, then you would repeat it. I would say something out loud, and you would repeat it, and say something out loud, and you would repeat it. And the only instrument mentioned on the side of the Red, uh, of the Red Sea is a tambourine. So think about this. They're playing a tambourine and they're, and they're almost chanting. But it's not the kind of worship songs that we see. It's not the kind of melodies and harmonies and things that we understand that, uh, that, that God loves. But when you get to David, David is the first person in the Bible. He is, first of all, he's called the man after God's heart. David is the first person recorded in the Bible to bring God a song. Now, he starts bringing God a song as a boy when he's out there wa watching his father's sheep. He starts bringing God a song then. He was a musician, and this was his gift to God, singing songs to the Lord. But he is the first person recorded to play <clears throat> musical instruments 
in the presence of God and offer God any kind of melody and any kind of words, it was David. David was beginning to unlock something that would become so important to us, especially in the day and time that we live. So I want you to turn in your Bibles, go to Amos chapter 9, verse 11. 9, 11. That should be easy to remember. So go to verse 9 and 11 of the book of Amos. And listen to what it says. On that day, I will raise up, here it goes, the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down, and repair its damages. I will raise up its ruins and rebuild it as the days of old. And then it gives you a reason for it. That they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who does this thing. Now notice he says, I'm going to raise up and restore the tabernacle of David. Now I'm going to tell you what that is in a moment and what that looks like. But he says, I'm going to raise it up. From its ruins, it's been torn down, rebuilt it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Eden. Now, what is the remnant of Eden? The remnant of Eden, according to, uh, according to this passage in Amos, is, uh, is the descendants of Esau. So you, you have to remember Isaac and Esau. So Esau is the father of Eden who would be the, the grandfather or the father of the Philistines, the Moabites, the Ammonites, the Aramites, the, uh, the, the Zoba, Damascus, Edom, all this area became the enemies of Israel. And what God is saying is when you restore the tabernacle of David, you will possess your enemies. Now, I don't want to give too much away here, but you need to understand something. When you begin to get into Davidic praise and understanding David's uh, unlocking the doors and the keys to, to God's presence... You need to understand that praise is a weapon. Praise is more than a song. Praise is more than just uh, enjoyment. People say, I enjoyed that song. I enjoyed that worship service. Well, praise can never become entertaining. Praise is not, uh, not, not another form of performance. It's, it's not another form of entertainment. Praise is sacred. Praise is a weapon. He said, if you can restore the tabernacle of David, you can can possess your enemies. You can conquer those who are trying to conquer you. Well, before we get into this story, let me give you another passage that also tells you from the New Testament what restoring the tabernacle of David can do. Now, we're getting to the key of David here in just a moment. I just want to say thank you to all of our ministry partners who help us take the gospel around the world and train pastors and leaders around the world. Because of you, we have been able to do so much for the kingdom and expand the kingdom of God. Uh, I was able to train over 5,000 church planters just in the country of India alone. We've worked all through Africa as well as Europe. Uh, every year I go to Romania and train pastors and we've trained hundreds of pastors there in, in Romania. We've graduated over 3,000 pastors from programs, certificate programs, just in Central America. Uh, our teams and our, the young men and women that I've taken on the field with me, numerous uh, young ministers who I just want to give them experience and, and uh, help them to get their feet wet in ministry, 
We have gone around the world spreading the gospel and none of this is possible without you. I just wanna say thank you for your continued support, whether it's a one-time donation of any size or whether it is a, a monthly donation that you've decided to partner with us uh, monthly. I just wanna say thank you for that. And for those of you that are looking for ways to give to this ministry, because it is a good seed to sow in and we're doing things around the world, here's a screen that would tell you some easy ways that you can give to this ministry. But once again, I just say thank you from the bottom of my heart and from all of those lives that you are changing. It is my honor to be your ambassador to the world. So in Acts chapter 15, so now go over to the New Testament. Let me give you just a moment to get there. It's very important that you see this. To go into the New Testament to the book of Acts, go to chapter 15, and I want you to look at verse 13, okay? So Acts chapter 15, verse 13. Now, while you're finding that, let me tell you the story that we're about to read from. This is the story of the house of Cornelius receiving the Holy Spirit uh, when Peter came and preached, and the Holy Ghost fell there at the house of Cornelius, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, when the Holy Spirit fell, remember how He fell on the day of Pentecost? How the Holy Spirit fell and the people ran into the streets and they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them the utterance and people began to get saved all around them because they saw this supernatural manifestation of the, of the Spirit that was coming through the 120 in the upper room. Well, on, at the house of Cornelius in this Italian regiment uh, or this, this Italian household of this centurion, uh, they're here of, uh, at his house and the Holy Spirit falls again while Peter is preaching. Now here's, here's the statement I want you to see. And after they had become silent. So that tells you a lot right there, doesn't it? I mean, the Holy Spirit has fallen and they are not quiet. They are speaking in other tongues. That's what he tells them later on. They're speaking in other tongues. They're rejoicing. They're glorifying God. These are Gentiles now. They're not Jewish people. The Holy Spirit has fallen upon them and they're glorifying God. And after they had become silent. Now, we don't know how long that took. It says, James answered and said, Men and brethren, listen to me. Simon has declared how God at first visited the Gentiles to take them to take out a people for his name. And with these words of the prophets, I, uh, I agree as they have been written. Listen to, what he says, listen to what he says was written in verse 16. After this... I will return and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down and rebuild its ruins. Does that sound like the aim of scripture you just read? And I will set it up. And listen to what he says here. So that the rest of mankind may what? Seek the Lord. Amos says, if you can rebuild the tabernacle of David, you can possess your enemies. Now, Luke says in the book of Acts, if you can rebuild the tabernacle of David, he said, you have built a bridge for all of mankind. It will draw men to God. That kind of worship will draw people to the house of God. And not only will you possess your enemies, but you will also see a harvest of souls that are being saved because you've rebuilt the ruins of the tabernacle of David. 
Okay, so we have to figure out what this is now. What is this tabernacle of David that has the ability to bring people into the house of God and has the ability to give us victory over our enemies? Well, we have to start with the tabernacle of Moses before we can discover the tabernacle of David. Did you ever wonder what happened to the tabernacle of Moses after the time of Moses and Joshua? I mean, I don't have time to go into the building of the tabernacle. Hopefully you're familiar enough with that story where God gave Moses the prototype of the temple in heaven and he made this earthly tabernacle so God could come down and dwell. And he gave him this mercy seat, the Ark of the Covenant, and on this Ark of the Covenant, God's presence would visibly and tangibly dwell and fire and cloud on that, on that mercy seat. So, have you ever wondered what happened to that? Well, the tabernacle of Moses was still being used even during the time of Solomon. Do you remember the story in the Bible and, and, uh, when Solomon actually went up and got this vision from the Lord? The Bible says he goes up to the tabernacle that was at Gibeon. And the sons of Zadok, who were there taking care of it and offering sacrifices to the Lord, brought in King Solomon, and he had this great vision. That's when the Lord says, build this tabernacle or build this temple, and everyone who comes to this temple, I will bless them. Everyone who prays to this temple, I will bless them. So Solomon is still visiting the tabernacle of David, the same tabernacle that Moses built, or, uh, uh, the tabernacle of Moses, not the tabernacle of David. Solomon is still visiting the tabernacle of Moses from years, years later that is still there in Gibeon. And the sons of Zadok, uh, a priestly, a part of the priestly group, Levitical group, is taking care of it. Now, Joshua 10 describes Gibeon as a great city. It says it's one of the royal cities, as a matter of fact. It had high mountain peaks, and the tabernacle was set on one of the highest peaks. And they gave that land to the Levites to live there. So when you would visit the tabernacle of Moses during the time of David, during the time of Joshua, you would go to the ancient tabernacle of Moses. It is still there. It has the outer court. It has the, it has the brazen altar. It has the laver. It has the inner court. There's the golden menorah. There is the table of incense and the table of shewbread. So all of that is there in the tabernacle of Moses. But there is something missing. There is one significant piece of furniture that is not in the tabernacle of Moses. And that is the Ark of the Covenant. Now, even though they're still going there on feast days, and they're like, think about the Day of Atonement, when they have to sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat. The priest is still putting on his garments. He's still walking into an empty room and throwing blood on nothing. They're still going to the rituals just like God is there, but the presence of God has left the tabernacle of Moses. Now it's religion. Now what they have is they have this religious expression. Let's go to the altar. Let's go to the labor. Let's go do all the things. Let's change out the table of shewbread. But the presence of God had been removed, but they continued to act as though the presence of God was there. Now, even the great tabernacle of Moses now has become almost idolatry to them. I know they were treating it sacred, but they were still going through the same rituals as if God's presence was there, even though it wasn't there. 
So what happened to the Ark of the Covenant? Well, the Ark had been captured by the Philistines because Samuel, one of the prophets, was waging war against the Philistines. This was, this was before the time of David. Uh, he was waging war against the Philistines and said, let's take the Ark out and wage war against them. And they brought the Ark of the Covenant out of the tabernacle of Moses. God did not tell them, by the way, to do this. They just thought that God's presence would go with them. So they took the ark from the tabernacle of Moses where it belonged and they took it out to battle against the Philistines and the Philistines won the battle and captured the ark of the covenant. There's a long story behind that that I don't have time to go into. The Philistines put the ark of the covenant in their temple of Dagon and the next day when they when they, when they got up, Dagon had fallen over and bowed before the ark of God. Uh, they put him back up, and the next day they came back again. His head was cut off and his arms were cut off. No one did it but God. And so the Philistines said, we can't have this uh, ark of the covenant in our land. Not only that, they began to break out in all kinds of tumors, um, to be honest with you, the tumors the Bible describes it would, would be hemorrhoids. And they began to break out. I know we don't like to talk about that in church, but that's what they broke out in. And, and so they also had a rat infestation in all of their cities. And so between the rats and the tumors and, and curses on their land, they could not handle this. So the ark only stayed there for seven months and it was destroying the land of the Philistines. So they tied the ark. All the five lords of the Philistines got together. They made these golden tumors. I don't, I don't want to show you pictures of that. They made these golden tumors and they put them next to the ark to offer these as a gift to God. And they put two milk cows uh, on the cart and put the ark on the cart and sent it home. And these milk cows walked down the road until they arrived to Beth Shemesh, which means house of the sun. They're back home in the land of Judah. And the ark had finally made it home. Well, the men of Judah were worried that the Philistines had taken the artifacts out because you have the, the, the Ten Commandments, you have the rod of Aaron that budded, and you have the table of, you, you have the, um, the, the manna, the, the a little vial of manna that was from the wilderness inside of this ark. And so the men of Judah wanted to inspect the ark to make sure that they had not stolen anything. So they opened it up, and when they did, God cursed them because they were not Levites. They were not supposed to take the lid off the mercy seat. They were not supposed to. So even now, though the ark is back home, the men of Judah have disgraced the ark of God by looking inside of it. So God lets a plague break out. 50,000 of them died. And, and so God, God allowed them to uh, continue to rebuild after that. But everyone was afraid to move the ark. So guess what? The ark of the covenant stayed there for 20 years. 20 years. And they were not afraid. And they were all afraid to move it. Well, when David becomes the king... David's wish is to bring the ark of God back home. Saul couldn't do it. David wanted to bring the ark of God back home. So when David became the king, he was attempting to bring the ark back to Jerusalem. 
and the road got bumpy and a man by the name of Uzzah, who was the son of Abinadad, who'd been watching over this ark, by the way, he had been the guardian of the ark for 20 years. That's why he's there with them. But when it began to fall, he reached up and grabbed it and God struck him down because he touched the ark of God. Now, the interesting thing about this is that because he touched the ark and God killed him, David was confused. David did not know how to bring the ark home because even the man who had watched over for 20 years just died because he was not supposed to touch the ark. So David moved the ark to the house of Obed-Eden, which was a Levite. Now, here's the interesting thing about that. Obed-Edom was, uh, was of the family of the Kohathites, who were the people who initially carried the furniture of the Holy of Holies when Moses was moving it through the wilderness. So David understands, I have to take it back to the place where God originally assigned it. So he takes it to a house where he knew they would be sanctioned by God to move this furniture. They're Levites, they're Kohathites, and they were the ones assigned to move this furniture initially. So when he takes it to Obed-Edom, everything is blessed. The sheep start getting blessed. There is no sickness in the house. The land starts producing. He notices that Mrs. Obed-Edom is always in a good mood. Everything is prospering. Everything around them is going great. Everything prospered. And David knew that God would bless them. But how do I get the ark back home? How do I get the ark from Obed-Edom's house back home? Well, David decided, and you find this story in 1 Chronicles chapters 15 and 16. David developed a plan that he got from the Lord how to bring the ark back. Now, keep in mind, the ark has been missing from the tabernacle for 27 years. 27 years the ark has been removed. He has to take it 18 miles. Now, David decides that he's not going to take the ark back to Gibeon because they have been disgracing the tabernacle of God by offering the same, the, the same sacrifices when there was no ark in the tabernacle. And David said, Lord, I do not want to take the ark back to Gibeon where they have been disgracing your name by by going through the formalities of religion and making it appear as though they were bringing blood to you and sacrificing to you when you weren't even there. So David said, Lord, I want to build you a new house. Here's what David has to do. He has to bring the ark 18 miles. And he decides that every six paces, maybe because six is the number of men, every six paces he is going to build an altar and sacrifice and move Eight, move six more paces and build an altar and sacrifice. And I want you to see this. There is an 18 mile long trail of blood behind David. No blood in front of him. Only blood behind him. 18 miles of blood behind David. And he keeps sacrificing, moving six paces, sacrificing animals, killing more animals, sacrificing to David. Not only that, you not only have the blood behind him, you have David dancing, wearing priestly garments, linen ephod. You have David dancing. So I want you to see this. As I, I wish I had a picture. There's no way I can give you a picture of this, but I want you to see the best imagination you can come up with of a king coming into a city. 
Now, I'm not talking about David. Think about any city of the world in the ancient days when a king would come in and they, they have royal dancers dancing all around them and music playing all around them. Have you ever seen these, on, these scenes on TV before where you've got these big elephants coming in and this pomp and circumstances? This is what it looked like bringing the ark home. It was a royal procession. The king was leading it as as the first dancer. But there was dancers all around him. There were people twirling and dancing. I want you to see as they were as they began to 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 swing all of the scarves in the air and the the reds and the blues and the purples and the yellows and all of these colors, these streaming colors as the dancers began to come in. There was music. Musicians playing songs. They were blowing trumpets. It was an absolute incredible entry bringing the ark back home. But when David brings the ark back home, he said, Lord, I don't want to take it to, to Gibeon. I want it to be where I can see it every day. So David takes the ark instead of Gibeon. David takes the ark to Mount Zion. Now, he sets it up. Now, you have to understand this. 2 Samuel 6 and 16. Let me read that to you. And they brought the ark of the Lord and set it in his place. And in the midst of the tabernacle that David had pitched for it. There you go, the tabernacle of David. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. So there's the window where we see the tabernacle of David being built. Now, understand this. He sets it on top of Mount Zion, right behind the royal palace. And this is the reason, one of the reasons why Mount Zion is so sacred even to this day. Mount Zion is covered with white limestone. So I want you to get this in your mind. There's this mountaintop of white limestone. The tabernacle was set on this white surface on the top of the mountain in the city of David behind the king's palace so David could look out his window every day and see the tabernacle and the ark of God. Not only this, listen to what David does. He pays and assigns, and you can read a lot of this in 1 Chronicles chapter 15, 862 paid priests were assigned to the tabernacle of David. Shania was the master musician, so he has hired a full-time conductor to work with musicians. He's not the musician, he's working with the band. So he's like a band director that works with all of these stringed instruments and percussion instruments. You've got drums and you've got all of these stringed instruments and organs and harps playing. Asaph was actually appointed over the percussion section. Maybe that's why he wrote so many of the Psalms because he had that good rhythm. So you have Asaph who's appointed over the percussion. Uh, Jeduthun was actually over over the harp section. So we understand that from Psalm 39. So he is over all the harp section. He-Man, not the one, uh, not the uh, character that you've seen on cartoons, but He-Man was his name. He was over the prophetic singers. So they had all of these singers that would get caught up in the spirit and begin to sing. Now there were 14 praise and worship leaders who were under three chief musicians. This was very organized. So get this. There's 14 praise and worship teams All of them work under three chief musicians. There are 24 sons of the chief musicians who were the praise and worship singers. So get this. Of all the chief musicians, you have three sets of 24 
And so you have three choirs of 24 people and they're up there singing around the clock. There are an additional 288 singers. Now, if you want to if you want to do the math there, that's 12 times 24. All right. So you can see where the 12 tribes of Israel were sending people to form these choirs and these formed massive choirs and they ministered day and night. When you read, when you get into first Chronicles chapter 16, you're going to see that they did not rest. They, they sang day and night. Can you imagine a place where worship never stops? Can you imagine a place where the music never ends? The songs never stop. This is the first time in the world this has ever happened. The first time in the Bible this has ever happened. Before then it was only prayer. Now they are offering God worship music and worship songs. And they sang 24 hours a day in shifts. Not only that, David appointed uh, ark recorders. Now what that means is when the Holy Spirit would speak... There were people that their only job was like a scribe. They wanted to write down the prophetic song. Now, now David said that his desire was to see the Lord's, to seek the Lord's face continue. There in, in 1 Chronicles chapter 16, verse 11. So he, he appoints the, the family of Asaph as appointed ministers before the ark continually. And this is what their job was. When someone would break out in prophecy, the sons of Asaph would write it down. This is where you get in the Psalms, in the book of Psalms, you get all of these songs that are ascribed to Asaph or the sons of Asaph. And it does not mean that they wrote them, but they recorded them. So you've got to get this in your mind. Worship has now done something that's never been done before. Worship has now transitioned the position of man with God. David has unlocked the door to the Holy of Holies and allowing man to walk through worship into the presence of Almighty God. They are now transformed from ministers of God to ministers to God. There's no brazen altar. There's no labor. There's no candlesticks. There's no shoe bread. There's no altar of incense. There's no ritual of worship. It is only songs offered to God. They're not going from the outer court to the inner court anymore. They are walking right into the presence of God where the Holy of Holies is with a song. A song is bringing them in. It is an offering. The Lord is accepting their song in place of animals that have been dying. He's accepting their song. That is why when you get to the New Testament, he says that now we are living sacrifices. We're no longer killing animals. We are the sacrifices. We are laying on that altar. When you come before the Lord in worship, you are the lamb on the altar. You are the ram on the altar. You are the animal that would have been killed. But now God says, come before me with your song. Now, when this happened, 24 hours a day, prophetic songs were written and born in this atmosphere. Many of the psalms that we read, that we call psalms, are prophecies. Do you realize that the psalms prophesy the birth of Jesus? The psalms prophesy oh, all kinds of things in the Bible where, where people would get caught up in this 24 hours of worship and prophetically they, be, they would begin to prophesy 
and the sons of Asaph would write down what they, what they prophesied, and they would write it to music. There was one, call, one song that David called the chariot of the cherubim. No one had ever seen that before, but David is caught up in this holy place, and he sees it, and he writes about it. The chariot of the cherubim. And he talks about angels riding on chariots. David writes a song, Holy, 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 uh, in, in the Psalms, which is the same thing the seraphims are singing. He writes about that because he sees, he is, he is looking through heaven's windows and walking through heaven's doors and seeing things that no one has ever seen before. He's seeing things before Isaiah saw it. He's seeing things before the, the prophets saw them. He's seeing things that God is, is birthing through him through these prophetic songs. These psalms were not just written, they were also sang. And that's something that has, that is something that had never been done before. Do you realize that most of the recorded prophetic songs are songs that, that we refer to uh, now as the book of Psalms? These prophetic songs, we now just call them psalms. We read them out loud. But all of them have rhythm. All of them have tunes. All of them have melodies. Do you realize that one of the reasons David introduced singing instead of Speaking is because you retain more when you sing. I know people that can't quote scriptures, but they can sing songs all day long. When you sing songs like, They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. I don't know if you've ever sang that song before, but do you realize that, that is a, that's a song we sing? But do you know what, realize that you're quoting Isaiah 40 and 31 when you're, when you're quoting that song? Have you ever heard the, the popular Revelation song? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. That is a song that's quoting Revelation chapter 4. So David introduced a way of learning Scripture through song. But not only that, he introduced 50 brand new expressions of worship. 50 expressions of worship. I, I don't have time to go through those. He, he introduced gil, which means to sing and turn around into circles. Halal, which is to joyfully celebrate in the presence of God. Rakad, to skip while you're singing. Sahak, which is to play an instrument while you're dancing. All of these new Hebrew words were invented because in the tabernacle of David, there was no way to describe a Moscow, a Hebrew word that means to twirl and dance. There was no description of that, but caught up in the spirit, people were moving and dancing and singing and prophesying. I can't imagine what it would have been like to be in that. Not only that, people were being healed in this atmosphere. God intended for people to be healed during worship. Yes, it's good if you can have the elders to lay hands upon their sick, but worship brings healing. No one worshiped like this before the tabernacle of David. And that is why Hebrews 13 and 15 can tell us now, Therefore, by Him let us continually to offer the sacrifice of praise. We used to sing a song called, We Bring the Sacrifice of Praise into the House of the Lord. Well, God says now your praise is just as acceptable as a sacrifice. He, he goes on in, in Hebrews 13, 15 to say, Bring the sacrifice of praise, which is the fruit of our lips. Instead of bringing fruit and grain and oil, instead of bringing flour and animals, bring me your song. That's why John 4 and 23 says, 
But the hour is coming and now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeks those who worship Him. You see, worship cannot be religious. It cannot be a habit. It cannot be about our favorite song and our favorite singer. It cannot be about who's on the stage and who's not. It, it can't be about who showed up and who didn't show up. It can no longer be about performance and enjoyment. God is looking for worshipers. God is looking for worshipers who will sing in a way that, that it will call in angels that is why the elders, when you see the elders in heaven and they're casting their crowns at His feet, you know what the Bible says they're doing? They're singing a song. That is why Paul and Silas, in the hour before they were supposed to be uh, uh, executed the next day, you know what they did at midnight? They sang a song. Do you know why? That's why Jesus at the Last Supper, before He goes to the cross, He has the Seder meal with the disciples, and the Bible says, and He sang a song. That's why an Alzheimer's patient who can't even remember their family's names, you start singing one of the songs of worship and they'll sing it with you because their spirit is still intact even though their body is racked with pain. Even in Numbers 21 and 16, it says, sing to the well. <laughs> I love that. He said from sing to beer, and the word beer there is a well in Hebrew, which, is, which, which means well. He said, gather the people and tell them to sing to the well. Spring up, O well. Sing to it. He's not really telling them to sing to a well. He's telling them to sing to a city. The city's name is Beer, B-E-E-R, which means well. He said, sing to the city. When you sing to it, you prophesy it. Maybe you need to sing to your city. Maybe you need to prophesy like, like uh, Isaiah 54, when God tells the barren woman, He said, sing, barren woman, and prophesy over your house. Maybe God is wanting our worship to do what He intended it to do. Remember what I read to you in the beginning, and I want to close out with just reading you these last two verses that I read at the very beginning of this, of this teaching. Amos 9 and 11. He said, On the day that I will raise up the tabernacle of David that has fallen down, I will repair its branches, or repair its damages, and I will raise up its ruins, and rebuild it as the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Eden, and all of the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord. God said, singing will win your battles. And then and again in, in Acts 15 and 16, there at the house of Cornelius, he said, after this I will return and rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins and set it up so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. You want to win your city? Sing to the Lord. You want to win your city? Go deeper in your worship than you have ever gone before. And you will invite angels. You will invite the Holy Spirit. And you will invite, you will invite victory into your life. The key of David opened up the key. The same door that shook when the seraphim cried out, Holy, Holy, Holies. It opens the door from the outer court to the inner court. The key of David gives you access into God's presence. Amen. Well, I certainly hope that this teaching is blessing you. Let me tell you quickly about a special offer that we're giving right now at Brian Cutshaw Ministries on two of our most popular products here. 
One is the last book that I've written called Bows and Arrows. People ask me all the time is if you could only recommend one thing or one book that you've written to read, what would it be? And I always say Bows and Arrows. This is a book that talks about what God is doing right now on the earth and how he's about to use my generation to bless another generation. It's an incredible book on mentoring and just multicultural and multi-generational ministry. Now we're putting this together with one of our top sellers and most requested items, the top six most requested sermons. You can get both of these right now at a real bargain. So go to briancutshaw.com and look at special offers. And this is offer number HW003. That's hope in the word 003. God bless you.